0: This morning, we're going to cover a single topic, and that topic is on anger, and anger is a challenging and heavy topic to consider. It's a universal emotion, and we all intersect with anger. It could be our anger. It could be the anger of someone else, and in one sermon, I can't possibly run the, down the whole trail of anger. So in the sermon, I may stir up some things. I may not provide an immediate answer. And I'm not following a particular text, which um, makes it more difficult, I realize, for you as the listener. So you'll have to, um, you'll have to work harder at listening. Um, we've also provided some resources to think about anger. And so in the newsletter this past week, and we'll say, do it again this week, Uh, books, articles, things that I've read that have been helpful, other people have read. And so if this stirs something up and you feel like you need some more help, I would encourage you to talk to somebody you trust because you need that. But also those articles uh, and book may be helpful. And also it may stir up something in your own soul, your own anger that you're dealing with against somebody else, against yourself, against the Lord. And so um, if you need prayer... I'll be down front after the service, another elder will be with me. And if you just sense, you know, as the sermon rolls along, hey, I just want somebody to pray with me about that, then I'm inviting you now to take advantage of that time. Also, this really isn't my sermon. I'm just piecing together somebody else's sermon. David Pallison, who's a counselor, Paul Tripp, who does counseling, Robert Jones, who wrote a book on anger. And then the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul. So I've just cut and pasted what they've said. So no glory to me. All credit to them and all glory to the Lord for uh, putting it together. Uh, But I want you to just run with me through several texts. So I'm just going to ask you to remain seated and see if you can find these as you go. Let's start with Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 through 7. Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 through 7. This is the story, or part of the story, about Cain and Abel, the two uh, two brothers born to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Once you get through the Gospels, Acts, Romans and then you find 1st and 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5:15 and he died or this is referring to Jesus. And Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. Then, Colossians chapter 3, which is where we've been um, these last several weeks. And let's just look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul, if you remember, he's talked about the gospel, and now he's talking about things of our life, and we're going to have to put to death some things, we're going to have to put away some things, and then we're going to have to put on some things. Chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And finally, let's look at James chapter 4 towards the back of your Bible, James chapter 4, a very practical letter about how to live as a Christian, James chapter 4, we'll read a few verses here, verses 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet. You cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then skipping down to verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. With those scriptures in our mind, let's take just a few minutes to sit quietly before the Lord. We'll mostly be in James chapter 4 this morning, but it's going to take us a while to get to that particular point. The Bible tells us in Psalm 118 to give thanks to the Lord because He is good. So we can all celebrate that God is good. Yet the Bible also tells us that God is angry. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul mentions the anger of God. Or the the effects of God's anger over fifty times, and he begins it in first in the first chapter verse eighteen. The wrath or the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So God sees the world and He's angry. Because of what the what the world has become, that they've separated them the world, the world has separated itself from God, and then the conflict, the damage that's happened as a result, and then in Colossians, Paul gives a specific list that we've been talking about of targets of God's anger: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and then he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So the Bible tells us that God is good and the Bible tells us that God is angry. So I think we conclude that can conclude that anger can be good. Anger, righteous anger, right anger can be good. And sometimes it's hard for us to put the love of God and the anger of God together. We struggle to do that. And Pallison, David Pallison says this, but you can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Because God loves, he's angry at what harms. Anger and love are different expressions of his goodness. And you understand that. Whether you love a person or you love a pet. Somebody harms them, what happens? You get angry. So you understand that you can have love and anger and really they're just different expressions of the the same thing. And that's how we think of it in terms of God. In fact, it's impossible for a good person to stand in the presence of wrong and be indifferent or unmoved. So anger can be a good thing. And let me give you three things to keep in mind as you think about righteous, specifically God's righteous anger. First thing to keep in mind, Ephesians 2, and this is the most important thing to, think, to keep in mind about God's righteous anger. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, All of us at one time lived to, to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. All of us at one time lived for ourselves. We are completely self-centered, completely self-aware, not aware of anybody else or even of God. We were objects of God's anger. But, and this is a great word in the New Testament, this small little three-letter word, but, but because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in his mercy, made us alive in Christ, and it's by grace that we have been saved. So the deserved, righteous anger of God, which is coming towards great sinners like myself, was satisfied. God's wrath was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. When we sing the song, In Christ Alone, you know the verse, Till on that cross as Jesus died, what does it say? The wrath of God was satisfied. So God is the judge of the universe. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the only person worthy of our worship, and he's angry at the sin and separation, and he's angry at the injustices that he sees on earth, and he rightly delivers a punishment. Then at the same time, that judge who delivers a sentence, delivers the punishment, he steps down and absorbs his own wrath. It's incredible. So he's looking at us, and he said, you guys, completely self-absorbed. And, and, and I'm angry about it because you're missing out on me being your creator, and you're also massively damaging one another. And I can't just look and just passively stand by and say, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Just like you can't passively stand by and watch somebody harm your child. But God delivers this right, righteous anger, this sentence, but then he takes off his robe. He enters into our world, and then he absorbs that wrath himself. And if you are standing behind Jesus, there is now what? No condemnation. Amen. That's the best news in the whole world. That's called the gospel. And I can't say it any more clearly than that. That's what's awesome about the Bible. It's all about God. None of it is about you. All you have to do is latch on to the cross and you stand behind His absorbing His own righteousness. And as He absorbs the wrath of God, as Jesus absorbs the wrath of God, what flies out of Him is His righteousness and it covers your, your sin. It's incredible. Second, God's righteous anger delivers you and I from the pain of other, other people's sin. God's righteous anger, the fact that God is angry at sin, he's righteously angry at sin, it delivers you from the pain of other people sinning against you. Let me see if I can explain that. In this room, there are people who've been deeply wounded, and I mean deeply wounded, by the sin of someone else. There probably was nothing you can do about it. You can't get back for it. It's a dent. It's a damage that's not going to go away. Those people are understandably righteously angry. God's anger and his promise to ultimately bring both healing to you and justice to them saves you from living your whole life imprisoned in bitterness and anger. See, if you're trusting in God... And this is going to be difficult. You can trust that because he's good and he's righteously angered, he's going to rectify that situation in a way that you're going to be satisfied. He's going to bring healing to you, and he's going to be, bring justice down on that event. And that's why you it saves you from being locked in this box of bitterness and revenge. Romans twelve nineteen the apostle. the apostle Paul says this do not take revenge but leave room for leave room for God's wrath John Piper states it so well God undertakes vengeance against sin by means of hell and by means of the cross so all sin will be avenged severely thoroughly and And justly, either in hell or at the cross. So when you stand and you know you've been sinned against, either Christ is going to have paid for that other person's sin, and you're going to say, I don't need anything else. That's completely on Christ. He's absorbed that. Or that person isn't going to trust in Christ, and they're going to serve their own punishment by being eternally separated from God in Knowing that helps you move forward. Otherwise, you get stuck. You get stuck in anger. You get stuck in your own bitterness. You get damaged and you get frozen and paralyzed by something that happened to you when you were 12 or when you were 22 or when you were 42. Whatever it is, and you just get stuck. You get frozen. But God's righteous anger delivers you from the pain of other people's sin. Number three. Because we are created in God's image, we were created with the capacity for anger. Because we were created in God's image, we were created with the capacity for anger. Anger is a good thing. Anger in ourselves is not a result of the fall. In fact, Adam and Eve should have gotten lethally angry when the serpent lied to them about God. They they should have reacted with violent emotions, killing the serpent who was trying to deceive them. But Adam and Eve didn't get righteously angry. And as a result, all the good things God had created, all of creation, all of the relationships, all the way you interact with somebody, all of your emotions, they all got stained by sin, including anger. And now fallen humanity For fallen humanity, anger is now most frequently used for self-righteous reasons rather than God-glorifying reasons. So anger was a good thing, but now in our fallen condition, we take the good things and we abuse them, whatever it is. We take money, it's a good thing, and we abuse it. We become greedy, we become materialistic. We take sex that is a good thing, and then we abuse it. We, we, whatever it is, we take a good thing, and it's turned sour. It's turned bad. And we take a good thing like anger, and now it's turned in to serve our own purposes primarily. Which brings us to Colossians, where Paul says we have to put away sinful, self-righteous anger. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the good anger. He's talking about the self-righteous anger. We've got to put that away. And then notice anger's, what I call anger's entourage. When you have anger, anger never is going to travel by itself. It's got an entourage. Listen to the entourage. Here's anger's three best friends. Wrath, malice, and slander. So when you have anger, these are three friends that are going to come along with you. And we're going to be able to see those three friends because they're going to spill out of your mouth. We're going to see what's in your heart because wrath, malice, and slander are going to come out. Robert Jones, in his book on anger, says this. Let's start with a humbling observation that most human anger is sinful. The biblical record confirms this. The most frequent Old Testament term for anger refers to human anger 47 times. So when you look at the the most frequently used word for anger in the Old Testament, it occurs 47 times. 90% of it indicate human sinful anger. So let's just use that percentage. That 90% of your anger is sinful. Jones just echoes what James says, James 119, everyone should be slow to become angry. Why? Because 90% of it is self-centered. So you've got to slow down. You've got to be able to find out which part is the good part, if there is any, and which is the bad part. So you've got to slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So slow down. Your first human intuition is, I'm rightfully angry. And 90% of the time, you're not. So you got to slow down. As you consider your own anger, what Robert Jones and James are telling us, as you consider your own anger, you must look in the mirror and affirm the biggest problem with your own anger is You, you are the biggest problem in your anger problem. But Paul, you're not married to my spouse. I know the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, but whoever wrote that didn't have to live with my kids. I wasn't feeling well. It was my boss, it's my finances, it's the traffic, it's my professor, it's my car, it's the weather. It's whatever, it's always something else, it's always outside. And when you say those things, you telegraph to the person that's listening to it that you think your biggest problem with anger is outside of yourself. And when you get stuck in that belief, as long as you believe that the biggest problem is outside of you and not inside of you, you're never going to look for Jesus as the answer. You're always going to look at that situation or that person to change, and that's going to be the answer, rather than Jesus coming in and transforming my heart. That would be the answer that James would want us to know. At the heart of 90% of our anger our what I'm calling lusts and lies, lusts and lies, lusts rule our heart and lead us to believe lies about ourselves, to lead us to, be, to believe lies about other people and the lusts lead us to believe lies about God. Because of the presence of sin in our lives, we establish a a mini-kingdom within ourselves. And that's true whether you have a two-year-old or you're 82. The lust in lives, you create a little mini-kingdom that's within yourself. And in our mini-kingdom, we are uniquely gifted to know exactly how everything should operate. And if anything or anyone becomes a hindrance to our desires, then we judge. We play God. We disapprove of what's happening. We disapprove of how God is running the world. And so we are very quick. We're not slow. We're very quick to set ourselves up as the king in our own little mini kingdom. Perhaps one of these might sound familiar. You're stuck in traffic. You thought you were going to take a shortcut. But when when you went down the single lane road, there was a garbage truck. You are not going to arrive at your destination on time. There's no way. You explode. You take God's name in vain. And when you finally race by the slow-moving truck and the other cars with your words... You tell them to go somewhere. So you play the judge. Why? why? Why does that happen? Maybe that's... I'm only speaking to one person now, but why does that happen? Your lust for your timetable rules. The entire world should be aware and operating according to your Google Calendar. It rules over your heart, and you condemn God, and you condemn all slow moving and stupid drivers everywhere. Jack and Jill, madly in love 15 years ago, had a memorable wedding after they fell down the hill. Today, as they sit in church, they look outwardly successful. But Jack's under pressure. His work is stressful. His wife doesn't understand. His children are not obedient. Rarely does Jill live up to Jack's standards. And when Jack doesn't get the results he wants, his boss's approval, Jill's adoration and affection, his children's obedience, Jack explodes. Jill rarely erupts. But inside, she resents Jack. When Jack blows up, she withdraws, and the once warm home turns into a cold war. war. Silently, Jill believes she's not only been betrayed by Jack, but she's been betrayed by God. Why would God allow me to marry such a stupid person? Together, they feed each other's anger, and their two children inhale their parents' anger like secondhand smoke. Their desires, even if they are good desires, even if they are good desires, their desires rule. Their desires determine their behavior. Jack and Jill sit in opposite corners of the same house, self righteously believing that their problem is outside of themselves, so their marriage continues to deteriorate. You're a 16 year old girl and you're angry at yourself. You can't believe you did something so foolish. You can't believe you're so ugly or so unpopular. Or that you're so hungry for attention that you keep making these same poor choices. You say you're a Christian. You know these words, Jesus has forgiven me, but you can't forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself, so you punish. You punish yourself. You're the judge and you're the victim in the scenario. You can't believe yourself, so you punish, and you punish yourself by cutting or burning yourself. Or you continue to make the same harmful mistakes, but it's just a way to keep harming and punishing yourself. So what's the lust and the lie When you evaluate and judge yourself and you can't forgive yourself... Then what you're saying is that your view of yourself, your judgment of yourself is more significant than God's. I hear what God is saying, but it's not significant enough. It's not bigger than my judgment. And my judgment, see that person, they've set themselves up in a mini kingdom and they're the rulers. And no matter what God may say, I'm the ruler, I can't live with myself, I must punish myself. That person is locked down with anger problems. Not only about themselves, but about God. Any of those sound familiar? See, when anger happens it quickly consumes you and when it consumes you it rules over your life genesis chapter 4 adam and eve and cain and abel see two boys they brought a sacrifice we can't be sure why god was pleased with one and not pleased with the other but god didn't accept cain's sacrifice for whatever reason and honestly god doesn't need to give a reason he just came, comes to Cain and says, hey, it, you, another, you need another try. That's as far as we know. Hey, this isn't right. Let's, let's redo this. But he sees that Cain is angry. He's trying to get to the anger. It's not that God doesn't know. Cain doesn't understand. So he comes to Cain and says, well, why are you angry? Do you, do you know, Cain, your own heart? Or do you think you're angry because of something outside of yourself? And Cain is angry at something outside of himself. He's angry at God. And God says sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And Cain didn't master his anger, but was mastered by his anger. And he couldn't take his punishment out on God. So who did he take his punishment out on? His brother. So frequently our anger against God is manifested in how we treat other people. Again, Pallison, just right on target here. Listen to this. People treat God the same way they treat others. This one observation will carry you a long way in your counseling. The Israelites grumbled against Moses and they grumbled against God. People live as if God and others exist to give them what they want. And when they don't deliver, they burn with anger. Second Corinthians 5 15. Listen again carefully. Jesus died so that those who live should no longer live what? For themselves. Do you you hear Paul's analysis of sin here? So critical that you hear it. Sin causes us to shrink our lives to the size of our lives. I'm completely self-absorbed. All of my life is contained in my own life. And that's the whole world to me. Sin causes you to want To live in the claustrophobic confines of your own mini-kingdom. But you and I weren't designed for that. That's not what we were designed for. Instead, we were designed to live in the ever-expansive ocean of the grace of God. But sin has caused us just to live in the tiny, tiny box of our own anger. C.S. Lewis just says it perfectly in his book, The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, there's a bus ride from hell to heaven, or sort of the beginning of hell to the beginning of heaven. And on this bus from hell are these people that they're represented like ghosts, and then they come to heaven, and they each meet somebody that they know or are familiar with. And these are solid people where the people from hell are all ghosts or sort of outline figures. And the main person coming from hell meets somebody that he refers to as his teacher. And the, the, the ghost begins to explain to the teacher his journey from hell out, of hell out of hell into heaven on this bus. And listen to what he says. We all came from the bus which traveled over the big gulf beyond the edge of the cliff. It, it's over there. You can't see it from here, but it's so big, you must know the place I'm referring to. The teacher gave a curious smile. Look, he said, as he knelt down and plucked a single blade of grass, and then using the thin end of the blade as a pointer, he made me see a tiny, tiny crack in the soil. He said, I cannot be certain that this is the crack you came through, but through a crack no bigger. All hell is smaller than a single pebble. Well, it seems big enough when you're in it. Do you see what he's saying? See, when you're in your anger, it seems huge. It seems consuming. Everyone should know it, but it's tiny. It's like a little molecule. He goes on to say, Perhaps, said the teacher, it seems big when you're in it, but all angers, all hatreds, all envies rolled together is only a single molecule. For the damned soul is nearly nothing, it is shrunk and shut up in itself. So 90% of your anger causes you to shrink and shut up in yourself into a tiny, tiny, mini kingdom that you are the ruler. I want to conclude but just by looking quickly at James chapter 4. And all I can do as a guide is just basically say, hey, here's the path. Here's the trail over here. Because we're running out of time. James chapter 4, verse 1. Notice James begins asking a question. See, it's the same way God began with Cain, James is beginning. Do you understand... What's happening in your soul? Not what's happening outside of you. Do you understand what's happening inside of you? What causes quarrels and fights among you? The Paul Phillips version continues to go on saying, The people I live with. The PPV. I've got that available in my office. And you can get that version anytime. What causes quarrels and fights among you? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what James says. James's answer is you. You're the one causing the, the, the quarrels and the fights. The anger starts within. Your desire has become a demand. And it may have been a good desire. It may have been for companion, companionship or comfort or peace. But the desire has morphed into a demand. And demand's vocabulary is, I must, I need, I cannot be satisfied without it. I must, I need, I cannot be satisfied without it. Now listen, the moment you turn something into an an I need, you have made yourself unwilling to live without it. The moment you take anything and say, I need, I must, I cannot be satisfied without it, then you've turned it in to the ruling power in your life. And you create an expectation and the people in your life or God who don't deliver get judged and punished. When they don't deliver on the, your expectations, you withhold affection, you withhold conversation, you withhold mercy and grace, you turn your home into a cold war, and if you're angry at God, you stop going to church and praying. And when you open your mouth about those things, those people, those circumstances about your church or about God, what comes tumbling out? Anger's entourage. Entourage. Wrath, malice, and slander. The clearly marked trail of anger. I desire turns to I demand, turns to I judge, turns to I punish. I hold court in my tiny mini kingdom where I'm at the center and all of my real problems are outside of myself. And if people or God don't operate according to my desired specifications, they're punished. The solution is the last few verses, James, verses 6 through 10. Again, I can't, this is an entire another sermon. Notice just verse 1, it's a war. You and I have this problem. Everyone here has this problem. And the problem is inside of you, and it's a war. It's not like a, a, a little problem. It's not like a little something you need to maybe get to next week. It's a war. And probably you know it. It's warring within you. So first, you've got to take the problem seriously. Secondly, you have to come to God because God himself is opposing people who are proud. He's opposing people who live in their tiny little kingdoms. You must repent. You must humble yourself. You must submit yourself to God's grace. Again, that, I'm sorry, that's an entire sermon or a sermon series. Lewis, I'll conclude here. Staring at the tiny crack in the soil, I said to my teacher. So he's taken the blade of grass. He's pointed out, say, hey, you know, you and all your friends who are totally self-absorbed living down here in what you thought was a big place. It's this tiny little crack. The ghost says to the teacher, so no one can ever reach them. See, the crack's so small, nobody can get down and reach these people who are stuck there. Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter in. Only... Only the greatest of all gods could make him small enough to get inside yourself, to enter in, to redirect your complete focus, get to, to bust you out of your ti- tiny little kingdom that you think is giant, but it's tiny, and open yourself up to God's grace and God's mercy. Well, it's heavy. But we have somebody who says, come, all who are heavy burdened, come, please come, and I will give you rest. Rest, not anger. You don't come up and think God's going to punish me. No, you come up and say, I deserve punishment, but you're giving rest. It's incredible. So if you've trusted in this Christ, weak as it may be, come and Receive God's grace. Very possibly, I've hit a nerve with a number of people. And you just need some time. You need some space. You need to talk about it with your spouse or friend. If you need prayer after the service, please come.